So I was saying, it's got a great subject, what Jesus did for the cross. Could we have a better subject, a greater subject? No, maybe not. Unless it's the resurrection, of course, which is equally great. Of course, you can't have the resurrection without the death of Christ. And the, it, the resurrection would have no meaning in itself, really, apart from a revival of a dead body, if it wasn't for what Jesus had first done on the cross. But it's, um, it's a strange thing, you know, that Christians glory in the cross, to use Paul's phrase, Paul's the Apostle's phrase, that if the cross is so central, it's so important. We, you find it everywhere, don't you? Let's see if I can make this work. Yes! Wrong, though. <laughs> it's strange about the cross, you know. It's very strange. Look at that. This is um, for you to be a wallpaper on your favourite device. You, know, you just can get this off the internet and download it. and can be on your PC or your iPad. It's a wallpaper. And if you probably can't see, but if you could look at the cross, you'll find it's all very nice and smooth. And the sun's shining in there round the back some clouds looks very pretty but it wasn't like that if you lived in the first century you wouldn't have thought like that let's go to those gallows would you put that on your desktop on your ipad how about this one the electric chair find that guy there very um, threatening, standing right next to the electric chair. How about this one? Do you know what that is? Yeah? Work makes you free. What Jesus did for us on the cross. Those pictures of those various forms of execution was far closer to what people would think in the first century than a nice little cross. When the Romans crushed Spartacus in the first century BC, they crucified 6,000 people. They, put their cruci they crucified them one every 30 yards or so for 100 miles along the Appian Way, down from Rome towards Naples. There was a rebellion just after... Herod the Great died, in other words, when Jesus was just a small baby, and they crucified 2,000 people in Galilee. In AD 70, when they crushed Jerusalem, they ran out of wood crucifying people. The Romans had three things, three things that they saw as really good for them about crucifixion. It's designed specifically for slaves and for rebels. Ordinary Roman, a high-ranking Roman, would never be crucified. It's for the lowest. It's for the rebels. It's for those you want to push down in society. It had three things going for them. First of all, it was extremely painful. It's designed to be particularly painful. Crucifixion would sometimes last for days. People would die very slowly. Secondly, it was designed to humiliate people. 
you can see this with Jesus. You know, the whole thing about wearing a crown of thorns, having a robe on him, a purple robe, which meant royalty. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. It's the humiliation. You think you're a king, we'll put you up higher on that cross with your subjects dying next to you. It's to humiliate people. And the third thing it said was, we are Rome. Don't mess with us. This is our power. You come up against Rome, we'll crush you. This is what it was about. So for anyone in the first century, thinking about crucifixion was abhorrent. Ordinary Gentiles thought it was a great shame, a disgrace to be crucified. So how come all Christians, the apostles, were saying we glory in the cross, speaking about Jesus' cross? And it was worse for the Jews, because in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it says, cursed, God's curse lies on anyone who hangs on a tree or on a pole. So Jesus is cursed. We will come to that later. What was special about Jesus when he died? Why was his death special? I'm not even sure his physical sufferings, his physical sufferings were worse than many other people. But he did suffer more than others. What was special about Jesus? Well, I think there's three things that make him very special. The first is that he was sinless. Jesus, and this was amazing, Jesus never did anything wrong. It says, for we would have a high priest, the Hebrew writers talking about Jesus, who's un, not, who is unable to see, empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Can you imagine it? Those disciples spent three years, day and night, with Jesus all the time. Would they know if he did something wrong? Of course they did. I, I wondered about Mary, what it was like to have a child who was never naughty. I always thought there was a problem when they weren't being naughty with our kids. <laughs> In fact, when they, were, when they were ill, if they started being naughty, I thought this was good news because we knew they were all right again. <laughs> Jesus was sinless. Utterly amazing. Tempted in Every way, the Hebrew writer says, except that he didn't sin. He didn't give in to it. But he would face that temptation. There was something else that made Jesus very special. He was God himself. He was God incarnate. As we will say at Christmas time, in just a few, minutes, few weeks' time, God come into earth as a baby boy. It says here in Philippians 2, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Jesus was God. Absolutely. Notice the last bit. Being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Yet the shame of it, even the cross, 
Jesus went to. He was so obedient. <clears throat> and lastly, he was totally human. There was no part of him which wasn't human. Yet, how can that be? It's amazing. It's almost incomprehensible. But Jesus was totally God and he was totally human at the same time. For this reason, it says, he had to be made like them. That's like his fellow, fellow brothers. Fully human in every way in order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus was totally human, totally God, totally special. But why the cross? Why did he have to die? Why did he have to go there? In Romans 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and, uh, <coughs> and wickedness. Excuse me. <coughs> For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness. Sin, I think, today is often seen as a joke. It's just a little sin. It doesn't matter. It's so old-fashioned. It's just a small thing. But we haven't grasped what it is. What is sin? I hate the word in some ways because people degrade it so much and we misunderstand it so well. The Greek word, hamartia, means to miss the mark, to fail. Have you ever failed anything in life? Ever failed an exam or I failed my driving test when I was 17. I remember it very well. I had to go into work where I was with a group of young lads, equally my age, who enjoyed it very much that I failed. Thank you. <clears throat> Don't want a Mrs. May moment here, do I? Um, so yeah, I fail my driving class, go into to work. There are all these young lads who oh, failed your driving test and rub it all in, make fun of me. Great, I thought. But I did pass a few weeks later. Mind you, um, Prince Charles passed at the same test centres that I took my test in the afternoon. I think they were so happy they passed everyone, but they... <laughs> People see sin as a joke. Sin isn't just doing minorist demeanors. What it basically means is failure to worship God, as Tom Wright puts it. It's to fail to put God in his proper place, to know who he is and to obey him. What's the greatest commandment Jesus gave? What was he that he said? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the standard. But we have turned away from God. All of us. We've all gone our own way. And the whole world turns away from God. And it matters. 
someone cynically I read somewhere says, why does God need people to worship him? Well, he doesn't, actually. Because God has no needs. God doesn't need us to worship him. We need to worship him because he created us. And we need to show our gratitude. He's given us every good thing that we enjoy. We need to worship him. We need to obey him. So sin matters. So we need forgiveness. Voltaire said, God will forgive us because that's his job. In Islam, I, Islam, I believe, um, they think that God will forgive because, um, well, he's God, he can do anything. Interestingly, in Islam, they, don't be they believe Jesus was a prophet, but they believe he never actually went to the cross, that somebody was a substitute at the last minute. I, don't, I think the Roman soldiers must have messed up in that case let alone Mary, his mother of Jesus, not noticing that it wasn't her son on the cross. But there you are. But there's a problem. There's a conflict between sin, forgiveness, and justice. I was trying to find this. There was an example of a woman um, whose son was killed, I think in a fight. I couldn't find the actual incident on the internet or anything during the week. There was a woman whose son was killed in a fight and she was a Christian and she publicly on television when she was interviewed said, I forgive that person. Great, you know, it's a great example of a Christian. Sometime later, it came to trial and... The guy was not convicted of murder. I think he was convicted of manslaughter and got a pretty light sentence, something like eight years, I believe, which if you serve half term time these days, you get out, would get out in four. And she complained that there was no justice. Uh, is that right? Can you have forgiveness and justice? They're not contradictory, in my view. They both matter. You've got to have justice and forgiveness. So how do you get there? This is a famous quote from Romans. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Through the shredding of his blood to be received by faith, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. Paul's really complicated to, to understand at times, and this is really densely packed. But what he's saying is, Jesus gave himself for us. What does it mean, a sacrifice of atonement? Well, um, it goes back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what God did is creates whole set of rules and regulations and sacrifices which pointed forward to Jesus. And one of them was on the Ark of the Covenant, 
Um, they were to slaughter a goat and then sprinkle it on the lid. And um, there they would have their sins dealt with. Why, how did this work? Jesus became a punishment for us. Look at this. I want you to, to think about these next two slides quite a lot. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a pole. Don't worry about the pole. Pole, tree, it's the same thing. Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus to be cursed? Cursed by God. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus is becoming a sacrifice for us. And in that, he's becoming cursed. Look at this one. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to imagine what it was, must have been like for Jesus to become sin. To actually be given sin. To become it. To be cursed. This is Isaiah 53. Really, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I believe Jesus took the punishment of sin on himself. As John Stott said, Jesus wasn't punished for being Jesus. He was, took the punishment of sin in himself. He voluntarily went to that cross. He did it out of love for us. He went there because we have sinned and he there needed to be a balance of the forgiveness of sins and the justice of God. And Jesus was that central meeting point of those two things. Jesus did it all, out of love for us. He did it voluntarily. When he said to Peter, um, after Peter recognized that he was the Messiah, after that Jesus explained that he was going to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And Peter stopped him and said, no, 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 Lord, you've got that all wrong. You don't want to do that. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was determined to go to the cross. But this talk is about what Jesus did for us on the cross. So I want to move on because there's a lot of things. One of the things I hope you're going to grasp this morning is just how much, how much there is 
that Jesus has done for us on the cross. Uh, Andy, a few weeks ago, you may remember, spoke a really good sermon on forgiveness and how Jesus on the cross brought us forgiveness. But there's so much more than this. What's he done for us? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We've just gone through that. But look at the bottom. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing is that the Holy Spirit has come through Jesus' death on the cross. It's because he died, because he rose again, that Pentecost happened, that the Spirit came that is with us. We, all of us who receive the Holy Spirit in our lives, who know him, we have that because of what Jesus has done on the cross. He's forgiven us. In the communion, that reference from the what that we use in the communion service. He has forgiven our sins. We have forgiveness in him. He's justified. This is another section, another set of references where Paul tightly packs it in. It's sometimes be quite difficult to understand. Let me explain it. Imagine you're in a court. You've done something wrong. You're standing in front of the judge. And he says, quite unexpectedly, the jury have found you innocent. You're discharged. There's no more problems for you. You're innocent in the sight of the law. This basically is what Paul is saying. Justification is the idea behind it is a courtroom scene. There's a famous case going on at the moment, isn't there? With this, um, what's his name? Let me see if I read my own writing. Um, Emil Sillers, who's supposed to have tampered with his wife's parachute. And um, when she fell out of the plane and nearly died. And he's been charged with murder. On Thursday, the trial was stopped. He's not been justified because he faces a retrial. He's not declared innocent. He's got to go through it all again. Think about Ostapius Pistorius. He was charged with murdering his girlfriend. He had a long trial. And they said, well, it's not murder, it's manslaughter. And uh, then somebody appealed, a prosecutor appealed, and they got it to murder. And last week, and they had another appeal, and they've just doubled his sentence. When we stand before Christ, we are declared innocent. For all those of us who have accepted him by faith, We're declared innocent. And unlike Oscar Pistorius, there is no coming back. There is no further appeal from a prosecutor to get us. We're innocent. All of us who have accepted Jesus by faith are innocent. And there's an important point here, because all of us 
have these things from the past where we almost hold on to them. We did this terrible thing. We did that. And we plays on our minds. But if we confess them, if we come to God in them, he's forgiven us and we've been declared innocent. He no longer has them. So when we bring it to God the third time, he says to us, I don't know anything about that. I don't... I don't know anything about... I'll keep talking and they can sort it out, hopefully. I don't know anything about that. You're innocent. It's gone. It's done with. It's all in the past. Let's see if we can get it back. You're going... No, go back. There we go. There's more. Jesus has done even more on the cross for us. Uh, i better put this away so we don't mess up. Jesus has done even more on the cross than that. This is some verses from Colossians. They're great ones, actually. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of the legal indebtedness that stood apart against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumph over them by the cross. What this is saying, firstly it's saying that we're all in debt. You know, we've got cap, we're looking, dealing with people who are in debt who can't manage their affairs. None of us can manage our debt in this sense. We're beyond it. We're lost in our own sins and isolation from God unless we come to him by faith. But every religion you can think of, except for Christianity, has a whole list of lists of do's and don'ts. And even when Paul was thinking about it, he was thinking about his Jewish tradition. You must do this. You must keep the Sabbath. You must only walk a mile on the Sabbath. You must, only, you must wash your hands 1,600 times a day. You, it always goes on and on. And what Paul's saying here is, Jesus counted it all. There is a moral law still, but all regulations, we don't have to walk a mile on our knees to somehow appeal to God. It's gone. It's on the cross. And what's more, the powers of God. What are these powers? You know, God is not the only supernatural power that is around the devil is real. He really exists. He's not got two horns and a long funny tail. He's a real significant spiritual power who has influence in the world. 
And there are demons, there are the devils. These exist. These are real. And what this is saying is that Jesus destroyed their power on the cross. So although the Bible says that the devil goes round like a roaring lion, his claws have been pulled. Yeah, he's got, it's, it's been, his work has been destroyed. And he's redeemed us. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The idea behind this is that we're brought back. You know, um, quite recently, uh, there were pirates off the coast of Somalia in, West Af in East Africa. And they would go out and take over these ships and then some companies would pay millions of pounds or millions of dollars to get their people back so that they could rescue their executives and everything. That's the idea here. We've been rescued. We were in the dominion of darkness. We were away from God and not knowing him. And he's redeemed us. He's brought us back. How has he done that? Through his death on the cross. Through forgiving our sins. Through putting his Holy Spirit into us. He's redeemed us. Brought us back. And finally, he's given us eternal life. I love this verse. It says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we awake, whether we live, or whether we are asleep, we may live together with him. Jesus lives with us. He's in our lives. Day by day, we live with him. We know him through the Spirit. He guides us. He helps us. He's a joy to our lives. He gives us great joy. But one day we're going to die. I'm 68. That means I've got two years to the big seven zero. The Bible says what's well, the span of life is 70 years. So I'm thinking sometimes two years to go. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? God knows. I don't know. But I know that one day I will die. But that I will be with Jesus. I love this verse because, you know, we don't know quite what's going to happen, do we? Will we go to heaven? Will we be on a new earth? How will it all work out? What will we be like? I have no idea. But this is the key bit that I know. I'm going to live with him. I'm going to know him and be with him. And the rest actually doesn't matter very much. The important thing is, I'm going to be with Jesus. And he gives that to us because of the cross. We won't suffer wrath. We will receive salvation, full salvation. Elsewhere in the Bible, a verse I haven't put up, because we've got enough already, is that God will 
redeem everything. The whole universe is going to be changed through what Jesus has done in the cross. Everything. We have the chance to live with Jesus forever. That's if we take him by faith. So Jesus has done all this for us. What is our response? How do we react to all that? All that Jesus has done us, given us his spirit, forgiving us, redeeming us, destroying the power of the evil one. He's reconciled us to God himself so that we can have an ongoing relationship with him. All this done through the cross. So how do we respond? Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. If we're Christians, I think that's the message I would like to give to everyone here and to myself included. How do we respond? Jesus said, take up your own cross every day. Follow me. What does that mean? Well, when Kevin Beeson spoke to at the men's breakfast, he said, one of the first points he said is that we should have daily surrender to God. And I think that's exactly right. That's what it means. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Daily, we need to surrender our lives to him. Be prepared to follow where he leads, what he does, what he moves us on to. And if, and if you've never known Jesus, if all this is a mystery to you, then you can come. As Wendy said when she opened this morning, come to Jesus. Come and know him. Come and respond. How, you, how can you do it? We do it by faith. And if anyone wants to do it, I'm very happy to talk to them afterwards to explain how it works. And Steve will on the hand and others. But come. Because it's the greatest thing you could ever do. No. Amen.